you have come to a Christian worship service today. Now just imagine how many worship services are happening all around the world today, this past 24 hours. And just imagine how different they all are. I mean, here in Winchester alone, we have about a hundred different kinds of churches, and every one of them has a different style in their worship services. Some have a planned liturgy, and others are spontaneous. Some have a lot of regular church people involved in leading the worship service, and others only use professional clergy in their leadership. Some are very serious, while others quite lively. Some have a whole lot of singing and a little bit of sermon. And then others have a little bit of singing and a whole lot of sermon. I'm not sure if that's us or not, but, you know, maybe. My question is this. Does God care how we worship or only that we worship? Does God care how we worship or only that we worship? Well, our sermon text is going to answer that question for us this morning. I invite you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 26 through 40. So remember that we're in a section of this letter from the Apostle Paul to the ancient church of Corinth. And the church at Corinth was experiencing serious division in their church. And it was because of their understanding and exercise of spiritual gifts. And those spiritual gifts were being exercised in the worship gathering when they gathered together on the Lord's Day for worship, they were exercising these gifts in a way that ended up being chaos and confusion. That's because they viewed certain gifts, especially speaking gifts, like the gift of tongues and the gift of prophecy, as a mark of spiritual maturity and status. And so when they gathered together for worship... Those who felt like they were mature and wanted status in the church, they would uh, want to display their spirituality and sometimes in competition with other people. And it just dissolved into chaos and confusion as they gathered together for worship. So Paul addresses this serious issue in three chapters, chapter 12, 13, 14. He makes five points, and we have spent five sermons on on Paul's five points. Well, this morning, we finish that section, and Paul is going to address this problem by saying that the spiritual gifts must be regulated in the worship gathering. So Paul gives instructions about how to regulate the spiritual gifts when they gather for worship. 
God does care how we worship, not just that we worship. So let's read these instructions in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 26 through 40. And as we study God's word today, my prayer is that our worship gathering will truly bring glory to God. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 26 and following. What then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two, or at the most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and God. Let two or three prophets speak, and then let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and be encouraged. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches. For they are not permitted to speak but should be in submission as the law also says. If there is anything that they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones it has reached? If anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, He should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So, my brothers, earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but all things should be done decently and in order. That's God's word. Did you notice that this section begins in verse 26 with an exhortation about the worship gathering? Let all things be done for building up. Then it ends in verse 40 with an exhortation about the worship gathering again. All things should be done decently and in order. And then in the middle of all of that, Paul gives instructions about the worship gathering. Do you get the sense that God does not only care that we worship, but how we worship? So Paul gave these instructions in order to regulate the self-promoting, chaotic use of spiritual gifts at the church in Corinth. Now, time out. I need to pause and give a uh, an important caveat from last week. 
or not last week, but the last time we were together. Remember, I explained two major views on spiritual gifts. One of those views is held by what we call continuationists. Continuationists believe that all of the spiritual gifts are still in operation today. So everything here that Paul is talking about still happens in the churches today. On the other hand, there are what's called cessationists. Cessationists believe that many, but not all, of the spiritual gifts are still in operation today. Specifically, the ones that have ceased are the sign and miraculous gifts like the gift of tongues, healing, miracles, because they specifically gave attestation to the gospel of Jesus Christ when it was new in the area to which it was being preached. Continuationist, cessationist. All of the gifts are still in operation. Many of them are, but the gift of prophecy, the gift of speaking in tongues, the gift of miracles and healings, no longer in operation today. Well, I would align myself very closely with the cessationists. And that's important because you'll hear that as I interpret this text. I'm not a full-blown cessationist, I would align myself with what many call a cautious cessationist, because I believe that, I definitely believe that the sign and miraculous gifts have served their purposes, but I remain open to the Spirit giving those same sign and miraculous gifts today if there was a certain time and a certain situation in which the gospel needed attestation in a new frontier place that did not have the word of God or the church. So, as I said the last time we were together, personally, I do not believe that the gift of tongues or the gift of prophecy, as Paul is describing them in this text, are still in operation today. So, Does that mean that this is not for us and that we're wasting our time studying this this morning? Absolutely not. It's vital to us, and here's why. Because as we understand Paul's instruction about their worship, we will learn lessons for our worship gathering. And that's the two parts of my sermon today. We're going to look at Paul's instructions to them about their worship gathering, their use of especially the gift of tongues and the gift of prophecy. And then we're going to learn at the end of the sermon four quick lessons about our worship gathering. So let's look at Paul's instructions for their worship gatherings as we read them here in verse 26 through 40. First of all, look at verse 26. We see Paul gives his main exhortation about their worship gathering. Verse 26, What then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, an interpretation. And then underline this last phrase. Let all things be done for what? Building up. So, 
this gives a very interesting insight into what maybe their worship gathering was like. We know that the early church usually met in a home. It usually involved a meal that they would eat together. And from this particular text, it seems like their worship gatherings were a bit less organized and included more regular church people than we probably have um, involved in our worship service here today. But I quickly add that we should not view this particular verse as Paul prescribing some, you know, divine sanctioned order of service. Look at the very beginning of 26. The phrase, what then brothers, indicates that Paul is imagining a hypothetical situation in which there was a super abundance of spiritual gifts and everyone was bringing something to say in the worship service. This is a hypothetical situation in which everyone is coming wanting to speak. And what's his instruction? Each participant, everything that is done must be done for one purpose. What is it? Let all things be done for building up the church, not building up individuals, but building up the church. Paul's point is corporate edification, not self-promotion like they were doing. Look at verse 27 and 28. After giving that initial main exhortation, Paul now begins to give instructions. And you'll notice in verse 27 and 28, he specifically gives instructions about speaking in tongues in the worship gathering. The gift of tongues, as we talked about a couple of weeks ago, is only spoken of in Acts and 1 Corinthians. And there's a lot of debate about what the gift of tongues was and is. You can go back to that particular sermon and listen for my opinion of what the Bible teaches about that. I also refer you to uh, Tom Schreiner's good book called um, the, uh, the Gifts of the Spirit, Spiritual Gifts. I have my copy that I would be happy for you to borrow. But for sure, for sure, the gift of tongues was a gift given by the Holy Spirit of God that enabled a particular Christian to share the gospel in a foreign language that they didn't know. It gave attestation to the miraculous power of the Holy Spirit and the validity of the gospel of Jesus Christ and his new covenant. But, I think there's enough evidence in 1 Corinthians that in other settings it seemed like there is some sort of spiritual utterance going on that is associated with prayer and praise and thanksgiving. Regardless, whatever the spiritual gift of tongues was, there's one problem. If there's no interpreter... Nobody has a clue what they're saying. And so it doesn't do anybody any good unless there is an interpretation. So, for example, if a foreigner 
stood up and started sharing his testimony, a good gospel testimony in Farsi. Unless there's an interpreter, we don't understand Farsi. Uh, someone praises God with some sort of spiritual utterance or begins to pray and praise with spiritual utterance. It's unintelligible. We have no clue what they're doing. It doesn't do the church any good. Here's, here's the formula that we understand. Uninterpreted tongues equals unintelligible confusion. And Paul says, no, it doesn't have a place in the public gathering of the church. Remember chapter 14, verse 23. If the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and an outsider or an unbeliever comes in, will they not say that you are out of your minds? <laughs> so Paul gives instructions here in verse 27 through 28. Look, he gives three instructions, very plain, very simple. Number one, limit. Look at verse 27. If any speaks in a tongue, let there be only two or at the most three. Limit. Number two, order. Look at the end, uh, middle of verse 27. And each in turn. Don't talk over one another. Don't talk at the same time. Two or three. And each in turn. And then, oh, by the way, number three, very important. Look at the end of verse 27 and then all of 28. Interpretation. There must be an interpreter. Otherwise, the gift of tongues has no place in the public worship service of the church. Read, read the Bible, verse 27, and let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church. Very plain. I think it's worth noting just from this text alone, that it's very, very, very clear that Paul did not view the gift of tongues as some sort of uncontrollable emotional experience that overpowers the individual, like an experience of ecstasy or frenzy. Paul says, control yourselves. <laughs> Sit down, be silent. I'm afraid we see something very different being practiced around the world, do we not? Paul's point in his instructions about the speaking in tongues is clarity, not confusion. Everyone in the worship gathering ought to understand, clearly understand what is being said. There should not be confusion. Look at verse 29 through 36. Now he gets to the second big gift under uh, question here. 29 through 36. He moves on from tongues to the gift of prophecy, another speaking gift. So he gives instructions in 29 through 36 about speaking prophecy in the worship gathering. And remember, again, from our last study that we understand from this text and others that the gift of prophecy was receiving and then declaring a revelation 
given by the Spirit of God that was given in order to instruct, encourage, and warn the people of God. And because it's given by the Spirit of God, there would never be any error. Verse 26 seems to indicate, look at verse 26, that the revelation may have come ahead of the worship service. Verse 30 strangely seems to indicate that prophecy might have been spontaneous. Regardless, Paul gives some very clear instructions about speaking prophecy in the worship gathering because there were two major problems with it. Problem number one. Uh, David Garland, one of the commentators that I'm reading, describes the problem this way. <laughs> it's likely that there were those who reckoned themselves to be wise and spiritually gifted, and they dominated the assembly, competed with one another for airtime, and discouraged others from evaluating their statements. Paul seeks to bring order in their speaking, to squash any elitist tendencies, and to prevent anyone from hogging the spotlight by claiming to be compelled by the Holy Spirit to continue speaking. So look at Paul's three instructions. Number one, verse 29, order. Order. Let two or three prophets speak. One at a time, friends. One at a time. We want to hear. Look, if this is the Holy Spirit of God speaking to us, we want to hear. Don't talk over to each other. Let two or th three prophets speak. Verse 30, respect. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. You can all prophesy one by one so that we all may learn and be encouraged. Rather than hogging the time and competing with each other in mass chaos, have respect for each other. Now, that could indicate that the Spirit gives some new revelation to someone else. That seems odd to me. But it could be as simple as a person who wants to prophesy, and the first guy's a little long-winded. I don't know how that could ever be. But he just lets him know, hey, listen, I'd like for you to wrap it up so that I can speak as well. I don't encourage you to do that in our public worship service, please. Regardless, respect, order, respect. And then number three, really importantly, Paul says that discernment and judgment needs to take place. Do you see that? Look, verse 29, let the others weigh what is said. Verse 32, the spirits of the prophets are what? Subject to the prophets. Why? Verse 33, for God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. Paul says, instructs, anytime somebody gives what they claim to be a prophecy from the Holy Spirit, the others. Who are the others? Maybe those with the discerning gifts, like of wisdom or knowledge. Maybe the elders, I'm sure the elders, maybe even the whole church, was to weigh what they were said. Why? 
if this is from the Spirit, why would we ever weigh it? Friends, because flawed, sinful human beings are capable of error. The Holy Spirit doesn't err, but the guy who wants to show off or fake it certainly can err. So no prophecy was ever to be received without being affirmed. We even still do that today, by the way. That's why we say amen. Amen says, let it be so. That's true. First Thessalonians, Paul gave the same in, um, instruction. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Now, it's interesting that Paul doesn't list here any criteria for gauging what the prophet says. So how are we to know? Well, you can just take the rest of the letter of 1 Corinthians or the whole of the New Testament and find out that anything that the Holy Spirit says and anything that would be helpful to the church would have to be congruent with the teaching of Jesus Christ, with what was handed down by his inspired apostles, and it would always center on the person and work and specifically the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's point here about speaking in prophecy is we want Truth, not error. The worship gathering of the church must have truth, not error. And then, from the end of verse 33 through 36, that process of discerning, weighing, and judging the prophecies made brings up problem number two. Read verse 33. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they're not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Problem number two. Well, as you can imagine, this text has been hotly debated. We could take this as a general instruction for all women in all churches to be absolutely silent. Some people believe that that's what it means. I do not. I do not because I believe the context in which this instruction was given is more narrow and more specific. Consider these four factors as quickly as I can give them. Number one, this instruction comes in the context of prophesying in the church service and then more narrowly in what? Discerning and weighing a prophecy that was given. 
That's when Paul says women should keep silent in the churches. They're not permitted to speak. Number two, this deals with women, and it might be talking about all women. I'm, I'm fine with that. But it more closely and immediately associates those women directly with their husbands. Do you see that in the text? Number three, this is important. The issue here is that by speaking, the women are somehow, quote, bringing shame. Shame. It is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Number four. Paul's specific instruction is threefold. First of all, they should keep silent. They should be submissive. And, verse 35, they should ask their husbands at home. I think the situation that best fits those factors was something like this. A man shares a prophecy in the public worship service. As part of weighing and discerning the truth of that prophecy, his wife publicly questions his prophecy. <laughs> raises concerns about something that he has said or engages in a debate about what he has said. Such action, especially in that Middle Eastern ancient culture, would have brought shame on that husband and that family. So Paul's very clear instruction Rather than speaking in the worship service, a wife should refrain from speaking. Hold your tongue and discuss it at home privately. That's my interpretive opinion. When Paul says this is universal practice in all of the churches... For sure, for sure, wives were not to question their husband's prophecies publicly, but they should do it privately and let the rest of the church talk to him publicly. <laughs> likely, likely, I'm, I'm very comfortable with this particular text being in line with other texts in the New Testament, like 1 Corinthians chapter 2, in which women are not to prophesy or weigh prophecies in the public gathering of the church because God has designed that the leadership and teaching authority of the church should be given to the men. But friends, I do not believe that all women are to be absolutely silent in church. I don't think you can get there from here. And I do not believe that Paul was or is prohibiting women from speaking in other ways, like sharing a testimony as part of a worship service under the authority of the elders. 
Again, that's my interpretation, and I'm quite confident that some disagree. Regardless, Paul's point is this. The worship gathering should be marked by peace, not contention. This is not a place for husbands and wives to debate and Worship service should be a place of peace, not contention. Look how he ends this section on prophecy. This verse 36 is amazing. He's talking about prophecy. He sort of comes back to the uh, big point again in verse 36. He ends with a scathing rebuke. Could I get some water there, Pete? Thank you. Please, it's a little bit. He ends with a uh, scathing rebuke. Thank you very much of those in Corinth who claimed to have the gift of prophecy. Read that there in 36. Was it from you that the word of God came, or are you the only ones who it has reached? Paul is just smashing their arrogance. Look at verse 37 and 38. Paul now again speaks to those who claimed spiritual authority and dominated the worship service. And Paul gives an assertion of his apostolic authority concerning these particular instructions. Look, if anyone thinks he is wise, that's the third time Paul has said that in this letter, which indicates that that's one of the major problems in Corinth. They think that they're wise and mature when they're not. And if someone does not agree with apostolic authority, they should not be recognized by the church. I love what Paul Gardner said. The irony of that is obvious. Listen to this. The irony, I'm so sorry about my throat and how it's No, it's all right. She'll give me some more water. The irony of this is obvious. The very thing that the elitists most want to be recognized as mature and spiritual people will be the very thing that they are denied by the community. Yeah. Finally. Verse 39 and 40. Paul summarizes. So then, my brothers earnestly desire to prophesy. Do not forbid speaking in tongues, but, would you mind reading verse 40 for me? (laughs) But all things. Thank you. Forgive me. Paul closes by emphasizing the value of spiritual gifts. He he does not want us to think, ah, yes, just get rid of spiritual gifts. They're causing more problems than they're worth. No, 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 no. He says, earnestly desire to prophesy. But then you can see the priority. Can, Can you see him structuring? And don't forbid speaking in tongues. The desire, the priority is on prophecy But don't 
forbid someone to speak in tongues. But then his final exhortation, all things. Okay, all things what? When the church gathers together for worship, all things, whether it's a hymn, a lesson, a prophecy, a tongue, an interpretation, a reading, a prayer, a testimony, a discussion, a members meeting, all things should be done decently and in order. Don Carson says, wise and biblically informed Christian worship will not pursue freedom or spontaneity at the expense of order. Paul's final exclamation is this, order, not chaos. Christian worship services, Christian worship services must be marked by order, not chaos. So that is a very brief and strangled overview of Paul's instructions about their worship gathering. Question, what should we learn for ours? I could be wrong. Maybe the gift of tongues and the gift of prophecy is still in operation today. So we should absolutely adhere to these instructions. It's God's word. But if they're not, if the cessationist or even the cautious cessationist particular position is correct, then I don't think that these are still going on. We don't, we don't have them in our worship service. So what do we learn from this? Just, just quickly, I want to give you four lessons Number one, God does not only care that we worship, but how we worship. Look, what we've seen today is that God has instructed us and them that our worship service should be marked by corporate edification, not self-promotion, clarity, not confusion, truth, not error, peace, not contention, and order, not chaos. Just walk down through that text. And that's really important for us today, friends. Really, really important. Because the American culture embraces expressive individualism to such a degree that we think God is quite happy to take any kind of worship that we'll give him. God's just happy that somebody would be worshiping him after all. What a puny, needy God. Our culture says, listen, no one, no one can tell you how to worship. That's entirely personal. Our culture says that as long as you are sincere and worshiping from your heart, that that is beautiful to God. 1 Corinthians chapter 14 says, no. God values something more than expressive, heartfelt worship. God values 
the edification of the church, clarity, truth, peace, and order more than you doing your thing, you having your truth, me having mine. Peace and love, brother. And this goes against the grain of 2023 American culture, Winchester, Virginia. We need to come to grips with the fact that God not only cares that we worship, but how we worship. David Peterson, David Peterson in his book on worship says, worship of the living and true God is essentially an engagement with him on the terms that he proposes. David Peterson doesn't believe in a puny, needy God. And neither do we. God has determined that we can only worship him through the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're worshiping God and it doesn't have anything to do with Jesus, you're not worshiping God. That's why our church is committed to being radically biblical and Christ-centered, gospel-saturated in everything that we do. Lesson number two, we learn from this text. God's purpose for our worship gathering is to build up this church. Look at verse 26. Let all things be done for building up. Now that might seem obvious to you, but look, let's ask this question. Seriously, go along with me on this mentally for a minute. If we really got down to the heart of the matter, what is the real purpose behind our church's worship services? Are they really purposefully, intentionally designed to build up this church spiritually? Or are there subtle alternatives at play. Purposes like drawing a crowd. We designed the worship service to draw a crowd. We designed the worship service to keep everyone happy. We designed the worship service so that our church will be acceptable to the culture around us. That's not God's purpose for his worship service. The worship gathering is to build you up in the faith. And could I just ask another question to make this more personal? That's the purpose of the worship service? Sure. I think everybody would agree. But personally, if we really got down to the heart of the matter for you, what was your real purpose for coming to this worship gathering today? I assume that it was to be built up. And that's good. But did you also come to build up others? To take everything God has given you, all of your gifts, and build up the person sitting on your same row. 
Lesson number three. In order for the church to be built up, God's character must be reflected in our worship gathering. This church will never be built up. You as a Christian will never be built up unless the character of God is reflected in our singing, praying, preaching. Just think about this. Regardless of the religion, doesn't matter. Don't limit this to Christianity. Regardless of the religion, we come to know the nature of the God being worshipped by watching the way he is worshipped and by watching those who are worshipping that God. We get to know the God by watching the worship. Question. What image of God does our worship gathering portray? Would non-Christians who enter our worship service understand that our God is a God of love, clarity, truth, peace, and order? Would they see and hear the crucified Christ here? And you personally, if someone were to observe you worshiping, not just here, but as you work, as you interact with your neighbors, what would they say about your God? God's character must be reflected in this worship service. And finally, lesson number four. In order for the church to be built up, God's word must be center in our worship gathering. Must be. Throughout this whole thing, what has Paul been arguing for? The gift of what? Prophecy. Why? Because that's a revelation of God. It's God's truth spoken to the church to build them up. Prophecy builds up the church. Chapter 14, verse 24. Prophecy clearly communicates the gospel to non-Christian outsiders who come in. Do you remember that beautiful verse, 1424? If everyone prophesies and an unbeliever or outsider enters, what's going to happen? He'll be convicted by all. He's called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so, falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. Would anyone say that about us? Brothers and sisters, I think he, they would. I'm so Thankful to be part of this church. But in order for the church to be built up, God's word must be the center of our worship. You know why? Because Jesus says, men don't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. We'll die without God's word. It's food for our souls. 
David said, God's words are better than gold. First Timothy, Paul says, all scripture has been breathed out by God and it's profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness so that the man of God may be complete equipped for every good work. Don't you want that? Only the word of God does that. Then he gives this warning. He tells Timothy, you preach the word no matter what anyone else has done. You preach the word because, listen to this. The time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but have itching ears. They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Friends, we will wander off into myths when we stop making God's word the center of our worship service. That's why. We want to have a word-saturated worship service where we sing the word, pray the word, read the word, preach the word, and see the word through the Lord's Supper and baptism. May the word of Christ dwell in us corporately and individually. My prayer is that our worship gathering will build up this church, reflect God's character, be saturated by God's word and all for God's glory. Let's pray together. God, thank you. Thank you for giving us a desire to worship you. Otherwise, we'd have nothing to do with you. Thank thank you for calling us to yourself through the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for your word revealing yourself to us, not just through creation, but through your word. Thank you for speaking because your word is life. I pray that you, by your grace, would keep us faithful so that when we gather together, this church would be built up. The Lord Jesus Christ would be magnified. The church would be edified and non-Christians would come to faith in our Savior. Please do that for your glory. In the name of Jesus, amen.